When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in today's show, Katha Pollitt will talk about right-wing women. We've never forgotten that in 2016, exit polls showed that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump rather than Hillary Clinton. And now there's a TV miniseries about the beginnings of the political organizing of right-wing women, It stars Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly, and it's called Mrs. America. But first, universal vote by mail. It's obviously necessary for our November 3rd election, but Trump is against it. He says that if we were to adopt universal vote by mail, quote, you'd never have another Republican elected in this country again, close quote. For a report on where we stand now on voting by mail, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU, and he teaches at the Georgetown University Law Center, and he's legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. His latest book is Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, the nightmare scenario for voting in person during the coronavirus pandemic was the Wisconsin primary on April 7th. It ended up with Democrats carrying the day anyway. But since the virus was peaking and everybody had been told to stay at home, why didn't Wisconsin allow everybody who wanted to vote by mail that day? Well, You know, I'm afraid it's because uh, the Republicans, or at least some very influential Republicans in Wisconsin, agreed with President Trump that voting by mail was not good for the Republicans. And so they weren't going to do anything to facilitate it. Uh, And so, uh, for example, because the crisis only emerged shortly before uh, Election Day, many people at the last minute uh, requested absentee ballots. And in Wisconsin, you you can vote absentee. You don't have to have an excuse. You can, But you do have to request the ballot. They then have to send you the ballot. But they got so many requests, they were uh, flooded. They Ordinarily, they have about 250,000 people who vote by mail. This time, it was 1.3 million people who requested uh, ballots to vote by mail. Many of those ballots did not even get to people by Election Day. And so there were efforts made by the governor of the state who was telling people to stay inside to extend the election to allow people 
the, the, the opportunity to have their vote heard through when through no fault of their own, they didn't get their uh, ballot in, uh, uh, in time. But his efforts were stymied. They were stymied by the Wisconsin legislature, by the Republican majority in the uh, Wisconsin legislature. They were then stymied when he tried to act unilaterally. They were stymied by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which voted four to two along party lines, the Republican majority, to say that he could not extend uh, the uh, the election by even a day. And then uh, they were and then the, the Democratic Party went to a court and a court said, well, you know, we're not going to extend the, um, the, the, the election. But what we're going to say is that if people get their ballot postmarked by the election day, they can be counted up to a week after because, right? you, you know, the postmark doesn't mean it gets there. Uh, it means it's put in the put in the box, not that it's uh, gets the recipient. That was overturned by the United States Supreme Court on a Republican party line vote five to four. So Republicans at every step of the way blocked the most sensible way to go forward. And and, and that's why you saw those pictures on April 7th of people standing in these incredible lines, trying to maintain social distance, literally risking their lives in order to cast a vote. Well, let's look at Trump's argument. We shouldn't have vote by mail because if we did, quote, you'd never have another Republican elected in this country again. We turn to you for an analysis of the constitutional aspects of that argument. Well, I think the first the first question is what like the Democratic aspects of that argument. I mean, the argument appear, seems to be if we allow ma- vote by mail, we're making voting easier. More people will vote. If more people will vote, the Republicans will lose. Well, you know, if if more people's preferences are being counted and you lose as a result of that, that's the way a democracy is supposed to work. It's not supposed to work where if most people want one side, then the other side should suppress voting as much as possible to maintain its advantage. And yet that seems to be the, the, the logic of, of President Trump's uh, uh, opposition to vote by mail. By the way, of course, President Trump himself votes by mail. Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's already applied for his absentee ballot in Florida. You write in the new issue of the New York Review that failing to make vote by mail available to all during this pandemic is an impermissible burden on the constitutional right to vote. Are you sure about that? So, so, and you know, the, the, so the Constitution gives everyone a right to vote, and it means that states have to provide a meaningful opportunity to vote. So, for example, if New York State opened one ballot, you know, uh, polling place in New York City on Election Day, that would be a violation of the constitutional right to vote. But similarly, um, courts have held that where emergencies arise that make the usual rules um, impossible to follow effectively, you are con- states are constitutionally required to respond. So in Florida uh, in 2016, there was a hurricane uh, that came in right at the end of the voter registration period. And you had to register by X date in order to vote in the next election. But the hurricane came in, it made, in the last week, it made it very difficult for people to register. And so the courts held, you must constitutionally extend the registration in order to ensure that people have a meaningful opportunity to vote. So 
if you've got a pandemic, if you've got government officials saying it is and public health officials saying it is perilous to your life to go out unnecessarily and, and, and then you, you can't vote without going out unnecessarily. Um, yes, they have violated your constitutional right to vote. And let's look at the politics of this. The Republicans, as you said, believe that voting by mail helps the Democrats. It's not just Trump who thinks that. What's the logic there? And is there evidence about this? So there is evidence, but the evidence doesn't support Trump's, you know, shockingly, the evidence does not support what Trump said. Uh, yeah, the, the evidence, I mean, political scientists have looked at vote by mail. There, there are five states that are now essentially all vote by mail, and there are another 20-some states that permit uh, no excuse voting by mail. So you can, you can and, uh, and political scientists do, look at what happens when you switch over to vote by mail, how are vote by mail votes different from vote in person votes, etc., and what they have found is no regular advantage to either party. Uh, in some instances, going to vote by mail has, has uh, advantaged the Democrats. In other instances, it has advantaged the Republicans. In most instances, it's a pretty small uh, differential. There's some reason to believe that it would support, it would support Republicans because um, older Voters are it's harder for them to get to the polls. Rural voters, it's harder to get to the polls. It's a lot longer to get to the poll than a city voter usually. And r rural and older voters are Republican strongholds. So you would think that it would uh, support Republicans in Vermont. I mean, in, in Wisconsin, in this last election, it turned out to have supported Democrats the vote by mail. Um, but it, it appears that that was basically because the Republicans just dropped the ball. They did not encourage their people to vote by mail, whereas the Democrats did. But, you know, if both sides are encouraging their people to vote by mail, it shouldn't be an advantage for one side or the other, except that it does increase the opportunities for everyone to vote. And, and you know, the Republicans have long took the view that um, we don't want everybody to vote because if everybody votes, we are less likely to succeed. So five states conduct their elections almost entirely by mail, Washington, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, and Hawaii. 28 states permit absentee voting by anybody who wants to, no excuse absentee voting. That leaves 17 states that require an excuse for voting by mail, an excuse like being out of the state on election day. But isn't the coronavirus and the stay-at-home rule a good enough excuse? It should be, um, but we've had to go to court in a number of states to, to, to vindicate that principle. So, for example, we filed a lawsuit uh, in Texas uh, just a, a month ago uh, because the Texas attorney general said, no, fear of the pandemic is not a justification for voting by mail. It's not an excuse. Um, and we argued, uh, yes, it is. The court agreed with us. Uh, and, you know, uh, we, we hope that, that will be the rule going forward into the uh, into the November elections. And we are pushing a number of states have, in fact, um, recognized the coronavirus and the pandemic as as a legitimate excuse. But that's not the only issue, because there's also issues about uh, how hard you make it to vote by mail. So we've had to go into a number of states to sue because states say, yeah, you can vote by mail. Uh, without an excuse, but you have to have a, notar a notary notarize your ballot 
or you have to have another person outside of your home uh, witness and sign your ballot. Well, both of those take you in contact with people, which we're being told is dangerous to do. And so uh, there, too, we've had to go into courts and we've been successful thus far in getting courts to say, no, you know, you, you've got to give people the opportunity to vote without endangering their lives. You know, by the way, 40 people um, now reports are that at least 40 people in Wisconsin may have caught uh, the coronavirus, caught COVID-19 on election day by going to vote at the polls. Thank wow. you to the Republican Party. Well, we record our show in California, and California, the practice in the past has been they send a sample ballot to every registered voter, and that includes a form to request a mail ballot, no excuse. They've just announced a new policy. They're just going to send postage paid mail ballots to every registered voter. You won't have to request it. That sounds like a good idea. But my colleague at UC Irvine, Rick Hassan, who's one of the best people who studies voting, says that's not a good idea. What's his argument? Um, you know, the concern with with vote by mail is, uh, is there going to be fraudulent voting by mail? It's, you know, it's Probably it's harder to, to vote fraudulently in person than it is by mail. There's zero, virtually zero evidence that anyone actually goes to a poll and says, I am somebody else and tries to, you know, forge a signature and, and, and vote in person. But there's some evidence that some people have, have tried to create false uh, mail-in ballots or tried to destroy mail-in ballots and the like. And so... You know, you do need to have some protections. Just uh, in the 2018 election, North Carolina had to rerun an election because a Republican operative had collected a whole bunch of uh, mailed-in ballots and was destroying the ones that were for the Democrats and, and, and putting in the ones for the Republicans. They had to rerun the election. So there you do have to be careful about fraud. And, and one way of, Rick Hazen argues, one way of limiting fraud is by say, by making sure that you have sent ballots only to people who actually are registered to vote and uh, have requested them. The risk with sending them to all registered voters, in his, his view, is that some of those registered voters will have moved in the interim. The, they may not have put in a forwarding address. The, 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 the ballot then goes to somebody who may not be registered, uh, and that person might vote fraudulently using that ballot. So that, you know, that's somewhat, something of a concern. You know, there are there are other ways to check that signature max ma matches and the like. Um, but signature matches also have problems. Uh, so um, I think that's his concern. He, he, what he would recommend is you send at a minimum, you send to every registered voter a for, prepaid form where they can request a ballot. And then if they send that back, then you send them the ballot and then they can just send in also prepaid and they can send in the ballot. It's a two-step process. It just reduces the likelihood that people will get ballots who don't deserve them. But the real issue is not fraud. The real issue is disenfranchisement. I mean, you know, there, there is a, there is a, there's one extensive study of all incidents of fraud over uh, a 12-year period. And it found that in the course of a 12-year, nationwide, 12-year period, billions of ballots cast they were able to find 490 incidents of mailed-in ballots that were, you know, erroneous or, or, or fraudulent, or potentially fraudulent. 
that's a rounding. It's not even a rounding error. And so, you know, and the real risk is that because of the pandemic, people will not get to exercise their right to vote. So I think our view generally is let the people vote and states should be required to do everything they can to make it uh, make the vote available. So if the pandemic is still going on November 3rd, do we want to see any polling places open for in-person voting? Won't that be too dangerous? Shouldn't we have everyone, isn't the ideal that everyone should vote by mail if the pandemic is still going on November 3rd? No in-person voting anywhere in America. No, I don't think we want to ban in-person voting. I think you want to limit, you know, limit it because it is, it is, does put people at risk. But the problem with relying entirely on vote by mail, and I don't know that any state does, the, the five states that have vote by mail, that predominantly use vote by mail, they also maintain some polling stations. And that's because otherwise you risk disenfranchising people, people who are, have a vision impairment, so they can't see the, the ballot. They need to you know, be able to go into the, uh, into the polling place where there are vision you know, enabled uh, 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 ballots or people who don't live near postal service. A lot of Native Americans uh, on, on reservations don't have regular postal service. You risk disenfranchising them. People who are not registered, you know, the best states have same day voter registration. But to, to register, you got to be you got to show up uh, and you can't register, you know, on the same day that you're voting by mail. And so uh, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to maximize the opportunities for people to vote, you should have vote by mail. But you should also retain uh, some polling places. And if most of the people are voting by mail, then those polling places will not be overly utilized and they will let be more safe. If you, you know, if, if you're like Wisconsin, where you're forcing people to go out, then you get the long lines, you get people standing next to each other for long periods of time. That's what creates the risk of, uh, of the spread of the disease. Well, the biggest problem with vote by mail here in California is the time it takes to count them. Orange County in 2018 was a normal election, a high turnout election, but it took more than two weeks to count all the mailed ballots. It took more than two weeks before uh, Katie Porter was declared the winner in Irvine. There's only a couple of hundred thousand total ballots in Orange County. If there are millions more mail ballots, won't it take many more weeks to count them? And doesn't that mean we won't know who is the new president for maybe a couple of weeks until after Election Day? It's possible we won't know, but I'm not sure that that matters. We don't know until Election Day who the president's going to be and <laughs> if it takes us a couple of weeks. But, it, but it, that also depends on how, mu how much resources are devoted to the process. So the states that have transferred to vote by mail, they don't, you know, it doesn't take them two weeks because they've figured out, they've transferred the process. They give, you give people more time in advance to get their uh, ballots in and the like, and, and you start counting as soon as they come in. And, and uh, you know, there are ways to ensure that there aren't uh, very long delays. Uh, you know, this will be a transition period because many states have not heretofore, you know, had to rely heavily on vote by mail. Wisconsin's an illustration where they went from 250,000 to 1.25 million, a five-fold increase. And so then the question really is, have we devoted sufficient resources to the, you know, to the electoral counting and regulatory enterprise to ensure that it runs smoothly? And the answer to that 
is no, we have not. Uh, the Brennan Center recommends uh, or estimates that it, it's going to cost uh, $2 billion to make sure that we have a full and fair and legitimate election in a pandemic in November. Congress has uh, allocated $400 million. That's one-fifth of the resources that are needed. One last thing. What we've learned in California with voting by mail is that Republicans send in their mail ballots right away. The day they get them, they sit down, fill out their ballots and put them in. Democrats wait until the last possible minute to send in their ballots. In the counting, they count the ballots in the order they were received. So the Republicans are ahead at the beginning. And then after two weeks, Katie Porter turns out to have more votes. Can you explain why Republicans send in their mail ballots immediately and Democrats wait until the last possible minute? I cannot explain that. Uh, I do think, however, that, you know, all, both parties are going to really uh, be focusing on educating their constituents about vote by mail, why it's important, why it's easy and why you should vote early. Uh, not often, but early. David Cole, he's national legal director for the ACLU. He's also legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. He wrote why we need postal democracy for the new issue of the New York Review. David, thanks for talking with us today. Great to be with you. Now it's time to talk about right-wing women with Katha Pollitt. We've never forgotten that in 2016, Exit polls showed that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump rather than Hillary Clinton. It's still a puzzling and frightening statistic. If you want to know where the political organizing of right-wing women in America began, take a look at Phyllis Schlafly and the fight she organized to block the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. She's the subject of a new nine-part miniseries on the FX channel. It's called Mrs. America, and it stars Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly. And Katha Pollitt has been watching. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, an award-winning columnist for The Nation. She also writes for The New Yorker and The Atlantic Online. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, first of all, remind us who Phyllis Schlafly was. Well, Phyllis Schlafly was a devout Catholic wife and mother of six. And she was a tireless, very well-connected right-wing ideologue. And... Uh, after her attempts to break into the foreign policy world, where she was very extremely conservative and thought, you know, Russia was about to take over and all like that, uh, after that didn't pan out, she made a fabulous career out of telling women to stay home. She didn't stay home, but <laughs> other women should stay home. Um, and unfortunately, um, as I detail in my column, she was very good at her job. I mean, she started out with a newsletter and meetings in her living room. And before you know it, she had forged the contemporary anti-feminist movement. You write in The Nation that we are living today in the world Phyllis Schlafly made. What do you mean? Well, uh, she, her first cause was to stop the ER, the Equal Rights Amendment. This was back in the 70s. And 
uh, it was going very well. It was really on track to be ratified. And then she said, she would tell women, you know, oh my goodness, you won't get child custody. You won't get alimony. There'll be unisex bathrooms and they'll draft women. Now, interestingly, some of, a lot of these things have happened anyway. <laughs> um, and this was very, very upsetting to traditional housewives who felt that their, their legal protections, which were never as great as they thought, but some of them did exist, they thought that would all be taken away. So she forged this movement that was around the idea of women being protected, for example, from having to get a job, women being protected from going into the army. Um, this was at a time when the divorce, in the 70s, the divorce rate had skyrocketed once divorce laws were changed. Um, there was a big backlog of people who said, oh, great, now we can get divorced. And so you can see why a woman who uh, had reached the point where she probably couldn't get a job that could support her and her children would be very concerned not to have herself made more vulnerable. So anyway, this collection of issues then connected with uh, with others. It connected with the radical right. Um, it connected with the religious right. And it connected with the anti-abortion movement. Um, and there you have the, you know, uh, the modern anti-feminist movement. Okay, let's talk about the TV series. It's not a documentary. Kate Blanchett is such a fabulous actor and so charismatic. Do you think she makes Phyllis Schlafly seem too sympathetic? Well, I think I think part of it is that Kate Blanchett is just unbelievably beautiful. You want to look <laughs> at her forever. She has a complexion you want to dive into it like a bowl of whipped cream. And I went online and I looked at photos of the real life Phyllis Schlafly, and you know she was pretty good looking too, <laughs> but nothing like this. <laughs> nothing like this. And uh, somehow they have managed to give her a kind of give Kate Blanchett. Uh, a kind of softness, which I'm not sure the real Phyllis Schlafly possessed. So that every time Phyllis Schlafly betrays one of her friends, um, you're surprised. You don't expect it. You think, no, this is Kate Blanchett. <laughs> and the femi- there's a, a range of feminists who, are portray- who get pretty much equal time uh, who are pro-ERA, and some of them were names that our audience would know. For example, Gloria Steinem, played by Rose Byrne, Betty Friedan, Bella Abzug and Shirley Chisholm. And they, they are not, portray- my feminist friends would say that they, especially Betty Friedan, are not portrayed in this glamorizing way. Yeah, Betty Friedan is played by Tracy Ullman, one of her many amazing characters that she has done uh, in, in her career. Well, this, bring, this brings up the sort of basic political question. When the Equal Rights Amendment got through Congress, it was supported by almost everybody, including almost all the Republicans in the Senate. I think there were nine votes against it. Nixon supported it. And yet it failed to be ratified by the required two-thirds of the states in the decade that was allotted to that. So, And it was supported by people we think of as very brilliant political thinkers. You've Bella Abza, Gloria Steinem, uh, Betty Friedan. How did... Phyllis Schlafly outmaneuver, you know, our best brains? Well, when the ERA was passed in the Senate, it was seen as just, oh, right, of course, we're just dotting the I's and crossing the T's here. Um, it was Phyllis Schlafly and her people who pointed out 
what they felt were the dangers it posed to women, that it was not a good thing for women. And uh, because this linked up with the growing conservatism of the Republican Party, which gets a lot of time in, um, in the miniseries, uh, that became a rallying cry. But then what's interesting is Phyllis Schlafly at a certain point sort of topped out with uh, religious, middle class, Midwestern wives and mothers. And she had to grow her list because it wasn't growing. This is all, a lot of this was about mailing lists. And so she hooked up with the hardcore racist fundamentalists in the South. And that brought a lot more people to her movement, but it also brought a lot of real hardcore reactionaries. Um, because, of course, the hardcore reactionaries were always there. She was one. In fact, there's a big debate going on about whether she and her husband, who was a well-known, conser very conservative lawyer and figure in the Illinois Republican Party, there's a whole discussion going on about were they actual members of the John Birch Society? And there's a certain amount of evidence that, yeah, they were, and then they dropped out because it wasn't good for their image. So, I mean, she was fantastically conservative. Um, and stayed so her whole life. But these other people, these Southern racists were, who are, portray are portrayed in the miniseries as, as, you know, real, real cave dwellers. And the show on TV has a political message for us, you say. What is it? Well, I think the message, at least what I took away, is that Never underestimate your enemies, <laughs> because that's what the feminists in the movie do, in the miniseries do. They think, oh, who are these women anyway? They're kind of crazy. Who does Phyllis Schlafly represent? Nobody. Um, and they don't take seriously why a conservative housewife might fear the ERA, because, of course, when the ERA started, it was fine with conservative housewives. And Gloria Steinem says at one point, well, re re revolutions are messy, people get left behind. And the consensus of the other women is, well, that's just the way it is. Um, but of course, people don't always, uh, aren't always down with getting left behind. Um, <laughs> and, um, even if in real life, a lot of their fears were groundless, they felt them. I, th I think that the only woman, the only feminist who took Phyllis Schlafly very seriously was Betty Friedan. And Betty Friedan is the least sympathetic character in the in entire miniseries, except for one of these racist fundamentalists. And uh, my friend, Rachel Steyer, who's writing a biography of Betty Friedan that'll come out next year, I hope, with the Jewish Lives series, she said the, the portrait that is given is really unfair. It doesn't give her her due. She was a very difficult person, but she does see what the others didn't see. So... Never underestimate your enemies. And Phyllis Schlafly succeeded at organizing hardcore evangelical women and racists. Uh, of course, we never had a chance with the hardcore evangelicals or the racists. But you say anti-feminism claimed some women who feminists should have sought to persuade. Who do you have in mind? Let's say there's a woman who feels that because of feminism... Her, she has to go to work. Her husband can't support her. Um, I hear this on the radio frequently, women saying that it's all the fault of, it's all the fault of feminism that their husband doesn't make more money. Um, well, I mean, you can argue against that. I mean, it's not true. 
Um, there's that. Um, but it speaks to this woman's fear that, oh my God, I am being left behind. <laughs> I think that there is more room for a feminism, which I myself probably wouldn't share, but that is just a little more conventional, you know, where we, you know, that's what, that's what Betty Friedan thought. She thought it should be about economic issues. She thought all the sex stuff was just playing into the hands of the media. I have this from Rachel Steyer, playing into the hands of the media that would much rather talk about sex than talk about how women don't get paid enough. It, it, that, that was a new thought to me that, and I don't want to make too much of it because maybe I'm completely wrong, but it just made me feel that although on the ground, real feminism is often quite conventional in many ways, its image in the media is completely the opposite. So we've only talked about women so far. Are men part of the story of the anti-ERA movement that Phyllis Schlafly organized? Yeah, and that part is really funny because one way that these that the anti-feminists and the feminists have something in common is men. Men are, men are the problem for both of them. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, we see many incidents where Phyllis Schlafly is put down by uh, even by her husband, who was you know extremely supportive of her um, most of the time. But um, there's a horrible scene where he kind of insists on sex when she's just exhausted and it's, it's just awful. But uh, she's, Phyllis Schlafly is put down by the, Dem by the Republicans. They don't take her very seriously. They don't give her the attention for as in foreign policy that she thinks she deserves. I mean, she wrote, uh, a Choice, Not an Echo, which was the Goldwater Bible. And then when he wrote his memoirs, he didn't, he, he didn't, she looks in the index and he, she's not there. Mm. And, but then on the other side, the feminists are betrayed by George McGovern and then by Jimmy Carter. I think we've kind of forgotten that George McGovern was not really down with feminism and he was certainly not down with abortion rights a year, just a year before Roe v. Wade. On both sides, they have a lot to contend with. In conclusion here, I wonder how the TV series Mrs. America explains why the ERA went from a measure supported by most Republicans in the Senate and Richard Nixon, how it went from basically universal support to defeat. And I wonder if you agree with the explanation the TV series offers. Well, in the TV series... The reason is that it is several fold. One is that she managed to forge this grassroots movement. And I think we never should forget because we, you know, here on the left, we, oh, grassroots, grassroots, we love the grassroots. There's a right wing grassroots movement too. And I think we often, um, people said to me, in fact, oh, well, you have to talk about how um, Phyllis Schlafly was being bankrolled by the insurance companies who feared the ERA for various reasons. Well, I don't know how much money she got from them, but that wasn't why it happened any more than the Tea Party movement, which also was bankrolled by wealthy conservatives. That's not the whole story. There were actual people there, too. Um, so one explanation they give is that, in fact, there was this mobilizable, rather large number of very conservative women who uh, were afraid of the ERA and thought it represented everything that threatened their way of life. Um, and of course, their husbands would agree with them about that. The other reason they give is 
that this movement melded with and coincided with a general move to the right on the Republican Party, you know, in a way, in some ways, and um, in the Democratic Party, too. Um, I mean, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter was the person who signed the Hyde Amendment and said life isn't fair. Um, but there's one other, can I say one more thing? Because um, I want to mention a wonderful book that everyone should read by Jane Mansbridge, the political scientist, uh, called Why We Lost the ERA. To her, and this isn't really discussed in the movie, the pro-ERA activists, she said, gave conflicting and confusing responses to the anxieties about drafting women and unisex bathrooms. Sometimes they would say, oh, this is never going to happen. And sometimes they would say, well, sure, it's going to happen, and that's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I think that was part of it, too. Um, the pro-ERA movement was, as Mansbridge points out, it was, volunteer, it, was, it was a volunteer movement. And so it wasn't like there was one message coming from the top about how we're going to do things, um, the arguments that we're going to make. So it was kind of um, a struggle between different factions of what they should say. And that was confusing to a lot of people. The show about Phyllis Schlafly and her success at organizing right-wing women to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s is called Mrs. America. It stars Kate Blanchett. It's on the FX channel. Katha Pollitt wrote about Mrs. America for her new column. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Thanks so much for having me, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. 